Hey there, welcome to our AP Legal Zone podcast brought to you by AP Lawyers. We are your top fix for all weekly law updates, including family, immigration, wills, and estates law. Just a friendly reminder we are not your lawyers, and everything contained in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and not to be construed as legal advice. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about our new episodes. Hello, I'm Angela Princewell. And I'm Shereen Abbey. And our topic for you today is child support. So under the law, every parent has an obligation to support their child um, to the extent that that parent is able to based on, on on their means. And this support is generally for an unmarried child that's a minor and either, um, if they're not a minor, then they're either enrolled in a full-time um, program of education, or if they're unable to be self-supporting because of illness, disability, or, or other um, cause. So um, essentially, for the most part, child support really is just a payment from one party to the other. Oftentimes, we hear people talk about um, supporting the child in in other ways like I, I know Shireen you've had clients that have maybe bought diapers bought foods for the child like do you have any concerns with that well interesting um I actually don't really particularly like it um if parties can avoid doing that that would be helpful and the reason I say that is because sometimes it's hard to quantify how much is actually being spent mm-hmm. because child support is regulated by the guidelines there's a specific specified amount that's required for your income to be paid and you know for example if you're sending a $500 e-transfer i mean actually that's probably a little more easier but if you're sending maybe giving somebody cash payments Um, Or, you know, you went and you bought those diapers, but you can't find those receipts and things like that. It's harder. It's much more difficult to quantify how much you've actually paid and give you a credit for the amount that you should have been paying. Yeah, that's something that I know some clients um, struggle with, which is sort of what is my child support payment being used for? right so they they some people are of the opinion that if my child needs xyz clothes and all of that that i can buy that for for my child and not have to pay child support i mean if the other party agrees there's there's times where it might be appropriate if other arrangements are being made for the child and the child's being appropriately cared for but more often than not, I would tell you in 90% of the cases, it's really not worth it. Like It's, it's also not appropriate because sometimes if you don't have an agreement, nothing stops that other person from going back to say, now you owe me X, Y, and Z in spouse and child support, absolutely. which will go over um, as well. But mm-hmm. essentially, like the support that's being paid for the child will go towards, you know, the care and the cost of raising that child. And they, the room, they have, they, they need a room to sleep in. It goes yeah. towards that, you know, and I know some people have a problem with that and they say well you know he or she went and got a bigger home and now I'm sort of subsidizing their child support and I understand your pain I I feel it if you're the payer and maybe you can't afford to do that but you have to remember that if this were in front of a judge if it's better accommodation for the child better neighborhood for the child the judges are going to look at it from that child's perspective and frankly Child support isn't much of a discussion these days. Like with the yeah. guidelines, it, it just is. I find that, uh, yeah, I think that's an also common. I think it's hard for some people to wrap their head around the fact that you got to pay child support. There's, except for very limited circumstances, which we'll talk about where you can actually reduce the sum that you're paying. But ultimately, it's a very clear issue. It's very black and white, as Angela and I like to say <laughs> it. Um, so there's really no point in disputing it unless the other party agrees. You know, there are circumstances where it's not uncommon that you guys will come to your other arrangements. But ultimately, you know, I think another concern is like where the money's being spent. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I had a client recently say, well, you know what? She's not spending it on X, Y, Z. Can't I just make sure she buys or she can she prove that she's buying, mm-hmm. um, you know, the child what she needs? And I'm like, no. The reality is no one's going to enforce such 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 a heavy burden to show that you're actually spending, you know, the child support on food for the child. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're talking about circumstances where the other party, party is maybe using it for substance abuse and the child not being looked after, again, like maybe there's some merit there, but 
overall, no. You can't yeah. you can't dictate where they're spending the funds. Exactly. And I know another thing that bothers people a lot is, well, fine, I have to pay, but I'm only, I've heard people say, well, I'm only going to pay until my child is 16 and then I'm going to pay, I'm going to give the money to my child. Yeah, right? Or 18, very common. Yes, some people think after 18, it's over. And, and it's not, and to be fair to the payors that are thinking that, I know a lot of it is not just rooted in this idea that they don't want to pay. There's concerns about how the other parents actually spending the money. Remember, some of these people were partners already and understand each other's spending habits. And they might see that this, you know, they might understand the weaknesses of one person and things like that. But on the other hand, some there's people that also firmly believe that after 18, the child should go fend for themselves. And if, if they were still in a marriage, that's probably what would have happened. But unfortunately, when you're separated now, um, you know, it, I mean, I, I don't know if it, that doesn't apply anymore. Even if your partner was on board with you saying, well, we're just going to provide for these children until they're 18 and then they're on their own because we want to teach them how to face the world and, and you know, be self-sufficient. That was fine then. If you guys are still on board on the same thing now, great. But if the spouse disagrees after separation, then you're just going to have to pay child support. So long as that child, again, as I said, it's, if the child is still independent, right? Um, usually they're attending school or there's other cause that makes them um, unable to withdraw from, from parental um, charge. So um, how is child support calculated? So child support is calculated by, it's actually already predetermined. <laughs> um, yes. And to determine, uh, determine the basic monthly amounts, we use the federal child support guidelines. And this is... Or the provincial. Or the provincial child support married. guidelines. Yep. Um, and ultimately, this is already a predetermined amount based on the average cost of raising a child, depending on your income. So And your province. The yeah. province, and it's taking into consideration the basic necessities and the cost of living and things like that in the province um, and essentially the child support guidelines. I think you're even overcomplicating it. <laughs> Honestly, for all they need to know is there's a guideline amount. You can find it by either finding the child support table, um, the child support guidelines. It's a table. It's just really has, it, it, on that table, just find your income, find find the amount of child support you need to pay. The government has factored in all of the things Shireen was saying into that number. Or you go online, if you want to find it yourself, you can even just Google child support table lookup and it would it would pull up um, sort of a box or whatever, pull up a page for you, the, the government um, page where you could just type in your income, select your province, number of children, it'll spit out the, the amount that you, you need to pay. So that's great where it's... Um, you know, just a child uh, or there's a, it's a parenting arrangement where one person is just paying child support to the other and that's simple enough. But let's let's touch on how parenting schedules sort of affect um, the amount of child support. Yeah, so that's actually a funny thing. A lot of people don't know that your parenting arrangement can easily affect your child support obligations. So the simplest way is if you're the primary care parent, you would be receiving the full table amount of child support dependent on your income. If you are, if you have at least 40% of the parenting time in your parenting schedule with the other child, with the child, sorry, then you're actually paying the set off amount, which is the difference between both your incomes. I'm sure I want to be careful there when we just put it in absolute terms, because you know that with law, everything is never, it's never absolute, right? At least 40%. So if you're, if you have that 40%, what it entitles you to is a conversation about yeah. it. So um, the courts, when you have that 40% threshold, then now the courts can look at having, I'm um, changing your support and based on, but they will still look at the means, needs and, and the other like circumstances of, of the child, right? Yeah, granted, so. it's not automatic. <laughs> I think that's the easiest way to put it. But yeah. if you're honestly at 40% or even at 50%, mm -hmm. the reality is for the most part, yes. you would be paying the difference between your incomes absent one of those circumstances regarding the means, needs, and circumstances of even the standard of living between the different households and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, how do we, so you, you've talked about sort of having the child for 40% of the time, but for most, actually, before I even jump to that 40% discussion, um, so the shared parenting, you can now 
how, what kind of child support would you be looking at in the, in that scenario? I guess, because a lot of people, why I say this is a lot of people come to us saying, we have the child 50 50. Um, and so I don't have to pay child support. That's a very big misconception. Oh, oh I see what you mean. Yeah. Honestly, it's one that I think a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, if you're the higher income earner, you're going to be paying the other party the difference between your incomes. So it doesn't mean that there's no support obligation. Yeah. Um, so if there's an income discrepancy, if your incomes are similar, then yeah, nobody nobody's going to be paying the other party um, any child support because mm -hmm. your incomes are similar. But you know, let's say the other party has a higher income. Unfortunately, you're going to be the one providing the other party with support especially if there's a big disparity in incomes. I think the easiest way I tell people to do this is if you figure out how much, you know, um, mom's um, child support obligation is based on mom's income, what's dad's obligation based on his income, and then the difference, um, you know, is the set of amount. Having set, and the set of amount is what gets paid. Now, you, a word of caution there, because if you're both looking at applying for the child um tax benefits yeah the child tax benefits you want to be careful to make it clear that father is paying mother one thousand dollars in child support and mother is paying dad um five hundred dollars in in child support even though we know the net result of that is is a five hundred dollars set off interesting point actually and because one party only one party can claim the dependent credit as well so that's also an addition so you want to make sure that you're factoring in for those credits and those benefits and if you do have a shared parenting arrangement, then ultimately you should be sharing those credits. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes with your incomes, you may not qualify for some of those credits, but um, parties can come to their own arrangements. Yeah. So, and besides shared parenting, there's also other arrangements like, um, you know, if it's a, 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 I've had clients where there's three kids, two children are in one home and one is in another home. Again, kind of use the same formula, figure out what one parent, if, if one parent has two children with them, figure out what the other party needs to pay based on two children. And then you would know what you, you get and then do the same for what you need to pay to the other parent because they have one child in their in their care majority um, of the time. So explaining this, I hope it doesn't sound more complicated than it needs to be because it's really not. But it's just we just want to debunk some myths about around, you know, people thinking, well, she has some of the kids. I have some of the kids, so I don't have to pay child support or we have the children equal um, number of times, so I don't have to pay anything. And and the number of times that, you know, I have had people resist giving equal parenting because they think they might not get child support. It's it's interesting. And I'm like, it doesn't really matter. You know, you might still get child support depending on your incomes. If he or she earns way more than you, you would probably still get a lot of child support there. Also remember that child support and spousal support kind of work hand in hand. So if you're insistent on having a shared arrangement so that you don't have to pay child support, well, remember that all of a sudden, now you have the ability to pay spousal support. And and even in shared scenarios, some people, when you're in, um, and if you've listened to our, well, if you haven't listened to our podcast, <laughs> you should listen to the one about um spousal support where we sort of talk about whether you should be in the low, mid or high ranges, right? If there's a shared arrangement, I strongly believe there's an argument that could be made for spousal support to be paid on the higher end, right? Because you want the children, there's now that focus on children having the same standard of living in both homes. So anyway, so that's sort of um, our quick um, notes on how child support is calculated. Um, another thing to remember, the benefits we talked about, it is not a factor in calculating child support. The number of times people have told me, like she gets, you know, $1,200 in child tax benefits, and then they want to deduct that from the $2,000 that they were supposed to pay in child support. It doesn't work that way like you. Especially if you don't have a shared parenting arrangement, you have you no, have but, no basis to ask the other party to deduct, I guess, what they receive or have an, 
an amount, entitlement to it that amount. It shouldn't even come into the equation. My opinion is it shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> and if it does. You'd be surprised how many times it gets brought up. You know, well, she's receiving the child tax benefit. She doesn't need X amount of dollars in child support. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It's so, not. If you have a mindful. shared parenting arrangement, get your child tax benefits directly from CRA. If CRA is going to split it between the both of you, then they do. And I know there's times where people have. Um, agree to one person getting the child tax benefits because you know that person has a lower income and they're eligible and it, for it, it it works out yeah better for and sometimes they put it in an RESP account and they have mutual they have different arrangements that they come to I mean I'm just going to just say what of caution there we're not asking you <laughs> to do it or not to do it do what's best for your family but you just want to be careful there um just from a CRA perspective yes yes um, so, so, okay, go ahead. I think we were talking about how to actually calculate that 40% um, in general, which I think is an interesting topic. And um, one, I think the most common is it is really um, a, a numbers game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so either you can do the days approach by counting the different days that the other party has um, parenting time, or you could do it by the hours. The hours approach is more favored by the courts according to case law. In saying that, um, it's not just a one universal way of calculating it. The courts have also made that very clear. But the best way to do it is what the court considers care and control. So, um, for example, if you're if you're the parent dropping off a child at daycare or school, you would count the time from that overnight um, or any period that you've had the child. But um, your timer would essentially stop at the time that you drop them off. If the other party is the one responsible for picking up the child and having parenting time after school, and so they would kind of get that a portion of time would allocated that still to apply, school. Though, Shireen, if the other parent, for example, is just picking up and maybe is not even on the list of like people the daycare can call, like you know what I mean? Because when I'm thinking, yeah, so that's why control, the court, yes, I'm thinking if my if the other side is the party that the daycare will call if the child is sick then they still have care and control up until the moment the other party picks up after daycare. So, so you see there is an argument, but, <laughs> and that's where the court would consider, okay, well, it, the reality is who's the closer, who's the closer party, you know, if the other party's working, you know, in, you know, Timbuktu <laughs> and has to drive two hours to the daycare. I mean, that's a very unreasonable parenting arrangement, but... You know, mm -hmm. it's not uncommon um, that there can be, you know, jobs that take at least an hour to travel to. So the court's going to consider who's going to be there first. Um, but ultimately, if you're the parent that's going to be picking up and not just having a small period of time with the child, but actually, you know, having that overnight, then that count that time should be allocated towards you. Of course, there's an argument with everything in law. Mm -hmm. So, but just just to kind of a basis to understanding, you know, that forty percent threshold. Um, an easier way to do it, yes, if you know if you're doing the the days approach, you could also do that in a more simplest complex. Um, unless you guys are doing such you know often transitions, so that's where I would say the hours approach. Well, it may seem very um, numbers, yes, tedious and very number focused. It's actually more accurate. Okay. Okay. And over what period of time do you do base these hours calculation? So there's also an, a dis discrepancy between whether or not we should be using the entire regular schedule or include the summer and holiday schedule. Mm -hmm. To be honest, the, like I would prefer just doing the regular schedule because that is the primary time. Yeah, because I know like the, under the act, it, it says that over days. the course of a year. Yep. Right? Yes. So I... I mean, if we want to be completely accurate, then we should look at the regular schedule and then, and then count the, the summers time. and yeah. holidays and all of that. So, yeah, when there's it could get really interesting when there's when there's a dispute over you know the forty percent versus yeah. or less so, threshold. When in doubt, I would consult a lawyer just because sometimes it can be a very rigid um, calculation that you'd have to do and very annoying. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and sometimes you know you're not understanding that. And we could do multiple factors. So just to really get the determination. So if you're at that 38, you know, percent and you need that 1% to get you <laughs> to not paying or hopefully um, not reducing, paying, yeah, yeah, reducing the child support, then that might be an option for you. Okay. So you touched on um, 
summer and I would yeah that kind of reminded me of summer child support um, issues and I find that this it comes up in a couple of contexts that I can think of off the top of my head now one is um, some people are thinking well during for some people that have say a shared parenting arrangement during the summer they don't feel like they should have to pay child support and then there is also um, people, children in post-secondary schools that return home during the summer. What's your What's your position on that? So, are you making reference to not share during the year, but only during the summer? Yeah, it comes very often, and unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we understand, like maybe the majority of the time you're sharing, it's still the child is still being accustomed to their home and it's just a summer schedule we're talking about two months here i mean except of but course to be honest unless they agree because i actually no, i'm even thinking if it not even agreeing like what if the summer schedule just takes you over the top of that 40 percent that you're looking for then that's a thing but if it doesn't and the other party doesn't agree then there's really no justification for you not paying the full table amount in the summer even if you have the child 50 percent of the time in the mm -hmm. summer Right. I mean, it's not uncommon to have a provision in your agreement to say that the summer months, even if you have over 40%, would not constitute as um, a basis to review support. So Absolutely. something something um, worth noting. But for the summer months for, you know, children in post-secondary expenses, I shouldn't really call them children. They're more like semi-adults. In post-secondary school. <laughs> in post-secondary um, school. Um, it, technically, that's where I would say there's an argument there, and it depends. Are they coming home for the summer? Are they, you know, having a summer job, um, or are they really truly just sitting at home? Um, and if they're dependent, honestly, then I would still seek the partial amount of child support. And um, there is that that um, calculation that would actually just factor in the summer months, summer months, just for that portion of the summer. Yeah, I mean, you could just pay the table amount for just those four months of summer. Um, I find that those calculations are usually more helpful when you want to spread out that summer child support over the course of the year, if not, if you guys agree. And I mean, I, we, I don't want this to be interpreted as us saying all post-secondary um, students are only eligible for child support in the summer. That's incorrect yeah no. the only time that i think it's appropriate um to only pay child summer child support for children in post-secondary schools is if the child's in residence and you're contributing to their um the cost for them remaining in residence outside in of the home yeah. but if they're if they're not in residence then you would still need to pay child support the regular way all year through or if you're not contributing to to it i guess to might mm -hmm. be might be an option um okay so now that i guess that um what i mean what are our thoughts on on sort of child support being paid to a child directly did we talk about that yes yet? so i it's not an uncommon request unfortunately no i don't agree um and especially when we're talking about the pedigree of a child who's truly a child mm -hmm. you know um i'm sorry but if they're 10 they're still a child even when they're 14 15 16 they shouldn't have the child support should go to the parent because the parent is actually being able to assess what funds are are being actually used for the necessities that the child needs it's not like the child's going to go out and buy you know their own uh toiletries i mean we'd like to think our kids are all that responsible <laughs> but honestly it's very inappropriate in my opinion and again yeah. it depends on the nature um there are circumstances where people have agreed um and where it may be appropriate overall i don't i don't believe it i don't believe that's appropriate yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Okay, so um, let's talk about these um, Section 7 expenses. So because we're, and by Section 7 expenses, I mean special and extraordinary expenses um, because we just talked about post-secondary schools. So let's, let's kind of talk about that. Um, I mean, what are, what are even special and, and extraordinary expenses, right? We, we talk about that all the time, and most times we just say Section 7 expenses. And if you're wondering why we do that, it's because it's under Section 7 of the Child Support Guidelines. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what are some of some ideas of... So the, so the most common Section 7 expenses are daycare, 
um, or medical expenses outside the coverage that you guys have. Um, mm -hmm. Anything such as, um, you know, tutoring, private tutoring or things like so things like that are the most common, honestly. <laughs> yeah, the post-secondary expenses. Yes. Yeah. Um, and what's important to note is these are actually in addition to child support. Yes. They're not, in, They're not. you know, you can't just say, you know what, why doesn't she just use the child support? Or, or deduct he, it. Use or the child support. Yes. The child support doesn't work pay. that way. These are in addition to your obligation to pay support. And these are paid proportionate to your incomes. Mm -hmm. So... You know, if you earn similar incomes, then it's going to be very clear that you each are going to pay equal shares. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, another thing that falls under this Section 7 expenses is our extraordinary expenses for extracurricular activities. Yeah. So let's be clear, it has to be extra. It has to be an extraordinary expense for extracurricular activities. Sometimes people interpret that to just mean extracurricular activities. So for the most part, it might be appropriate to pay additional amounts if your child's attending, I don't know, whatever activities they're, they're involved in. But um, just be mindful if the if the cost is is minimal, especially after tax cost is minimal, then the courts may expect that you use your child support amount. But if it's extraordinary, like I, I heard hockey, um, hockey is expensive, most rep sports, yeah. whether it's rep dance or or mm -hmm. soccer or whatever, are pretty expensive. So that would be an extraordinary expense. And I know a lot of times, um, you know, parents have had I've had clients that are concerned about paying for um, these Section 7 expenses because they think it's expensive. It's and, and it is, right? Like you're separated now, you know, you don't have sort of that joint income anymore and it's it, it could be difficult and, and I hear you, but I found that a lot of times the judges would approve some Section 7 expenses and I know it would cost hardship to you because after all, child support is not tax deductible. You just pay child support and you know you're le just left with the rest of your income but if if your income is really low or if you have other obligations and you're struggling with that section 7 expense even though in the opinion of other people it might look minimal then it's it's a conversation that's worth that's worth having especially you know if it's beyond what the children had while you were married right exactly so it's the whole idea to try and at least maintain some kind of quality of life close to what they had before you separated but life happens things change so should we jump into undue hardship under these circumstances I think so. <laughs> okay, so what is undue hardship? So undue hardship is essentially where, unfortunately, due to circumstances that will actually go into factors that you can determine, mm -hmm. um, that you're actually unable to pay the child support amount and potentially even the Section 7 expenses. Mm -hmm. um, and you can bring a claim for undue hardship asking and requesting that the court consider your application to reduce the child support amount. Yes. So that's a, yeah, well explained, Shireen. That's really what it was. Just remember that it says undue hardship, not just hardship. I tell people there's no way that paying child support is not some sort of hardship on most people, <laughs> but it just has to be undue. And under the, um, under the guidelines, there's various factors that the, you know, that the legislature has, has listed that would be factors in, um, or circumstances that the that would be looked at as causing undue hardship. So part of that is if you if you have an unreasonable high reasonably high level of debt that you incurred to support sp your spouse and the children prior to um, to separation or to any living. So I have seen cases where undue hardship claims have been brought because after the date of separation just you know life's difficult and things like that and that party has incurred an unreasonably large amount of debt it usually doesn't apply the courts would not um you know yeah. would not care one of the cases we're going to actually talk to you late about later um when we're talking about retroactive child support had to deal with with an unusually high amount of debt but the courts did not factor that in because it was incurred after the date of separation if you have a high, um, unusually high expenses in relation to exercise and access, right? So I'm thinking flying in from Thunder Bay from time to time to yeah, see the child. To Saskatchewan, like those parenting arrangements, you know, having to, you know, pay such a significant cost just to exercise your parenting time. Yeah, so I have... Um, 
tried um, with <laughs> a client in Barrie and the other in Durham region. The judges weren't very pleased with, with the argument. We did get something, but not as much as I, I would have wanted. I just thought we should get a lot more given the distance. But that's just to give you an idea that if you're probably closer than Barry, then maybe that high cost of gas and stuff like that may not qualify for undue hardship. Yeah, if or... you live 45 minutes away, yeah. an hour away, no. <laughs> and yeah, if you have an obligation to, you know, to support another, um, you know, any other person. So let's say you have, um, if it's a separation agreement and an order for child support for someone else or for spousal support, that's something that the courts can consider when looking at your undue hardship claim. Sometimes that's the most common um, one. So, you know, having other support obligations. And the yes. courts will consider that, especially if you have multiple children, because there is support paid to the first child approach and that whole circumstance as to what is appropriate in that circumstance. So, the, the I mean, none of these factors are determinative. They're just things that the courts would look at. Um, you have to bear in mind before you bring this kind of claim to think about what kind of standard of living do you have compared to, compared to the other party, right? So even if you're su suffering an undue hardship actually to yourself, but um, the other, the, but you still have a higher standard of living in your home versus the recipient's home, the courts are not going to care. They're not going to care that you're paying more than half of your income for support to other, um, you know, to, to a children from maybe a previous relationship to a, a to a first um, spouse. The courts wouldn't care because, as far as they're concerned, on your fifty percent hardship claim, um, if you're if you have a higher standard of um, living, then that's um, it's a non-starter. It's still better than the other party. Again, the priority is to focus on the child's obligation to receive that support. But it's interesting. I think overall, what you're trying to say, it's a high threshold. It is exactly. Yeah. It is a it is a high threshold. It's not something to try very lightly. A lot of cases uh, involving um, this are, are for the most part unsuccessful. So, um, I mean, once we've had, so once you, you have, you figured out what child support you have to pay, you've thought about whether, um, you know, undue hardship applies, but we've not even talked about what income do we even use in calculating the child support, right? I mean, if you're a regular employee, then we're just looking at line 150 or it looks like CRA is calling it 1500 these days. And that's that's it, because it's usually is a reflection of your of your T4 income anyway. Yeah. And by regular employee, we're not saying that you employ yourself and you're paying yourself from your corporation. We're talking about those who truly don't have, um, you know, the ability to actually have a business and are not self-employed, essentially. Yes. <laughs> so another thing that comes up often as well when we're talking about um, incomes is people say, for people that maybe their incomes have maybe risen over the last three years, people, because there's a provision in the guideline where the courts can look at your pattern of income in setting the income for child support, People just take it for granted that it's automatically just a three-year average. It's yeah. not. There must be a reason, just without even having to paraphrase it, it just clearly states that if the court is of the opinion that in determining your income it, um, under Section 16 would not be the fairest way, then the court may look at your income over three years to determine an amount that's fair and reasonable in light of any pattern of income, fluctuation in income, or receipt of non-recurring amount during those years. Exactly. So if your income is just maybe going up because your your employment income is rising, you're getting these promotions, you can't really just use the, the, average. the average. That's not really appropriate. It's really meant for, let's say, your seasonal worker, maybe one year. Or commissioned and, workers, or commissioned for example. Worker. And, you know, that year you did great. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, next year... You know, we're talking about significant decreases and increases between incomes, like true fluctuation, yeah. not a fluctuation based on actual performance and things like that. I mean, commission income is a very common one, seasonal mm -hmm. work. Um, yeah. And honestly, un unemployment can also be, I mean, but then we'll talk about yeah. income, but no, even but yeah. I mean, I would have an argument if you're if someone, laid off for a portion, you know, for half a year. I might have a concern with that, Shireen, because let's say this is 2021 and... 
a client three years ago um, had was not employed. I don't really care though to no, do an average. So that, that wouldn't be appropriate. Yeah. So don't. I don't want people thinking. Well, <laughs> I was unemployed for one year. You have to remember that for most people, we're going to talk about the annual review of of um, child support. So if all of it is going to factor in at some point, so we're going to get there. But first, another. Um, you know, way of determining your income. If you're a shareholder, director, or officer of a corporation, then we're going to be looking at your pre-corporate tax income. And you need to understand that there could be adjustments made to your pre-corporate tax incomes to claw back some of the expenses. So, I mean, obviously we know for CRA reasons, if you, you know, you could pay management fees and benefits to to different parties and all that and the men don't necessarily be arm's length parties and things like that while you're doing great for tax planning purposes for child support purposes that income might be might be clawed back and rather than looking at what your um, net income is the you know you might be looking at paying child support on your pre-corporate tax income obviously there's ways around that you know just looking and making sure the expenses uh, are reasonable and things like that yes exactly i think that's a very common one is the people intend to rely on their net income um and um no (laughs) yeah and it's it's disappointing Um, to find out that it's not and it's upsetting right so if you if you believe that the expenses were appropriate they were paid to to abs that parties they're necessary for you to mm -hmm. generate the revenue and and keep the business um running properly then absolutely like that but if you're writing off your rent for where you're actually living your vehicle expenses things like that they they would be clawed back meals and entertainment Mm-hmm. Very common one again within reason, but it's yeah. it's it's just um, a fair note that your income just because it's on CRA is not going to be the income that we're going to be using. Yes, absolutely. So now, what of where your income is too low? So let's talk about this all important subject of imputing incomes. My favorite. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So imputing income is essentially where you believe a party's underemployed or intentionally underemployed or has the ability to be self-sufficient and is not. Um, but I want to preface this by saying each parent has an obligation to support themselves and support their children. Um, and of course, if you're not, this is where imputing income to the other party becomes relevant. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for example, one party is intentionally underemployed um and earning maybe twenty thousand dollars but has the capacity to earn maybe seventy thousand dollars that is where imputing income comes Mm -hmm. into place um we would be looking at the relevant factors such as your ability to work um your experience your you know um your skills and why are you just why are you not working if it could be medical reasons then we want to understand what those medical reasons are and whether they're enough for you because not every medical reason Mm -hmm. and to be honest i think that's a very common one is oh i have you know not to not to um displace that these are important issues but there are still jobs that are you know you're able to actually you know participate in and just because income. of that obligation to support your child right so yeah yep and sometimes if you're receiving um you know those kinds of incomes from the government and assistance some of them can be grossed up yeah. for taxes so, so so it's also important to note yeah i know that for imputing income as well you're you could look at um spouses that so if, if you're exempt from paying federal or provincial taxes um, the the courts would impute income to you so that, as Shireen said, it could be grossed up in that context. Um, if you have property that you're not um, reasonably utilizing to generate income for yourself, um, the courts can also impute income to you because, hey, it's one thing to be, I mean, your property also needs to be generating revenue so that you could provide mm-hmm. a better quality of life, um, a standard of living for your child. Um, you know, if you if you fail to if you unreasonably deduct expenses from your income, which we kind of talked about earlier with, um, or if you you're know. hiding income, I think that's a common one as yes, well. Yes, that's if you're a hiding big one. income. I think that's the most common um, con- concern that I get is, well, you know, he gets cash jobs, and yes. if we can prove that, sometimes it's difficult, of course, because 
So with cash, we know that it's, you know, goes largely unrecorded unless, you know, we can mm-hmm. see large amounts being deposited and a tracing. Or sometimes if you have the benefit, I mean, for longer marriages, it's very common that they, they're privy to that information, you know, yes. and they have like receipt books and things that we could produce as evidence to show that, you know, there are there is additional income sources that are not being disclosed. So mm-hmm. credibility is an issue. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Also, if you're getting um, majority of your income as capital from capital gains, then income could be imputed to you to to gross up that that income. Right. Um, yeah. And what else? I mean, I'm sure there's other circumstances. Yeah. Um, Investment income, rental income are all income for support purposes. Exactly. Regardless of what you believe and even what you claim as rental income versus what you net, there's also, again, what you report to CRA is going to be different from our purposes. Yeah. I find it interesting that under Section 19, the, the, the Act actually makes it very clear that the reasonableness of an expense or deduction is not governed solely by whether the deduction is permitted under the Income Tax Act. So like we said (laughs) earlier, it doesn't matter that CRA allows you to do that. It's not, um, you know, it may not be allowed for child support purposes. So, I mean, for for those that are somewhat concerned about, um, you know, patterns of incomes and some saying, well, I make less in some years versus other years. And if we're not averaging out your income, well, does that mean you're just like left there take heart because child support is changed annually so the worst that would this and there's two ways you can approach these um child support payments my favorite and easiest one is to pay based on the previous year's income um income tax returns whatever your income is so let me just say the previous year's income because as we know we might not go by what's on your notice of assessment so if we're so in 2021 child support would be based on your income in 2020 so if your income in 2020 was less than what it is in 2021 if you're the recipient you're receiving less because their the 2020 income was lower but come 2022 when they're paying income based on 2021 income it doesn't matter if 2020 2022 income is lower you're getting the higher amount so it kind of yeah, it sounds it convoluted. So, it adjusts yearly. So if you overpaid, it gets adjusted. If you've underpaid, it gets adjusted. But another way people like that's the most accurate way, it just requires a little bit of math, is to pay based on, to set support based on your estimated income for that year or even make pay based on, even if you're paying based on the previous year's income, but there's an understanding that at the end of the year, you're going to calculate how much child support you paid and how much you ought to pay. And if you've overpaid, then you would deduct it from support payments going forward. And if you've underpaid, then um, you might have to pay it over a period of time or pay it back um, as a lump sum. So that way, it's either way, your actual income is what your child support is going to be based on, either in real time or from you getting the benefit of paying um, based on the prior year's yeah. uh, income. Because I think that's a, a sometimes a concern, especially if maybe in one year you did a lot of overtime. Yes. Um, and then received a bonus in the next year. Unfortunately, maybe the company didn't do so well and you didn't get that bonus and you didn't have a lot of overtime shifts. So you would get that adjustment. So not, don't worry. It will be it will be credited. I mean, of course, uh, unless you're, you know, do other provisions and other um, have another agreement there. But ultimately, child support gets adjusted annually based on your income. And, and you're supposed so every year you're supposed to disclose your incomes. Um, usually people ask why. So you mean forever she needs to see <laughs> my income. And unfortunately, the answer is yes. And it goes both ways if there yeah. are special and extraordinary expenses. So remember the section seven expenses we talked about earlier. Well, you need to see her income. She needs to see your income because without that, how do you calculate um, your proportionate share of expenses, right? Yeah, so just like child support gets reviewed annually, so will those Section 7 expenses. So in one year, yes. Yeah, so if in one year you made a lot and now you're paying 70%, well, the next year it may readjust so that you only have to pay 50, um, maybe 50% or even less depending on how things have gone. And again, if that's too much for you that you can't afford to pay based on the prior year's income, 
it's possible to pay on the current income, but understand that there will be adjustments done later to, to make sure that you're paying based on your um, correct income. Yeah. So sort of the documents that you need to um, exchange every year to figure out, you know, child support and Section 7 expenses are, you know, your personal income tax returns, notice of assessment. And I, I know sometimes people ask me, and I'm sure, Shirin, that's happened to you as well, why do they need my income tax return? I already gave her my notice of assessment. Well, I'm going to tell you for one, and you can add to that. If you're the income tax return tells us how you're getting your income. So if you have rental income of, I don't know, 50,000 and now because of expenses, it's now minus 80,000, for example, yeah. I might not be able to get all those details, see what you deducted and things yep. like that. Any non-taxable income you can see there, any benefits, credits, yes. paid, really anything, even if you received, for example, um, if you're paying for your share of daycare and you allow the other party to claim it, you could see what portion, what, I mean, depending on how your arrangement is, some parties have the other party paying half of the amount back to them, credit mm -hmm. off child support. But you, but you can get um, half of that care credit essentially for the child for the daycare cost that you've paid. So you can actually see what that is in your income tax return. Um, I mean, granted, you may be able to see it on the notice assessment for that particular example. But we need to be able to see the actual expenses and things like, especially if you're self-employed, we can actually see the expenses you've deducted exactly. and very detailed sheet of business and um, activities and statement of income and things like that. So yeah. very relevant. Um, don't think that you don't just get to disclose your income. I think that's a common problem is that mm -hmm. people will just say, oh, I already told her my income, it's X, Y, Z. And I'm like, but she needs the disclosure or, you know, yeah. the reality is like <laughs> you could say you could sing it until you want, but the, the disclosure is required. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, for those that are earning, um, income you know, incomes of over one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, under the guidelines, so the guideline amounts kind of caps out at like 150. If your income is greater than 150, then the courts may, the tables may not apply to you and the courts would have to look at your conditions, means and, and other stuff to figure out um, an appropriate amount. But I, we can tell you from experience, the courts usually don't do that. Like your income may be 200,000 and they would want to apply like sort of a yeah, straight I think, amount. I to be honest, I've never really had that. Yeah, not really. I mean, maybe maybe an income over two fifty. Yeah, but we be. But unfortunately, to... they're not very quick to change the support amount to find it inappropriate based off an income of one fifty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you now know that you know you you now know what child support is. That if you have a child, you have an obligation to support the child. It will be based off on sort of the parenting arrangements that you have you know you have to disclose that's extremely important and you know that you have to review i mean you have to do this on an annual basis and and you kind of have an idea of how what your income would be like um and the other thing i want to add there on that note is well we also would like to see security for child support no yes <laughs> so for those um that are unaware it's actually an obligation for you to secure your child support obligations under the law um, the most common way is life insurance to secure a certain amount of the policy to the other spouse being an or sorry the other parent being an irrevocable beneficiary sometimes you could designate other people as a beneficiary in trust for the children it's not uncommon um, either registering a lien um, on the estate um, or sorry on, on, the, on their property or first charge against their estate is the most common or designating a certain portion of an RSP to, to secure that amount. Um, the amount required to be secured is actually factored already in the calculation. We can determine exactly what the amount is required. Um, and every year, of course, it would go down a little bit, but we don't usually adjust it every year. Mm -hmm. um, but it's important to know that it's not just overpaying the monthly child support, it's you also have to secure it. And the reason is in the event that uh, the unfortunate passing of that payer, payer parent, um, then, you know, the other parent doesn't have to actually sue your estate as a dependent and actually can just get the insurance proceeds or the life insurance or so whatever portion you've set aside. 
throw whatever I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what about, let's, I want to talk about people that have stood in the place of parents or another child, mostly step parents, right? So um, the interesting news here is if you're the step parent of a child, you may um, have an obligation to provide child support to them, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you're not the step parent, but can be conceived as one. So if you're living together in a common law relationship for a good period of time, that's also considerate to um, stand in the place of a parent. So the length of your relationship would be a factor. Um, your relationship with the child, your financial, the ability of how much you financially supported the family and that child specifically, mm -hmm. your relationship with that child. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can't remember any more factors. Yeah, no, there's, yeah, no, you're, you, I think you really have it all, um, you know, covered, right? The, I mean, I think the only other factors that the courts would look at is the biological parent, if the biological parent is able to, um, what's the, what's that parent's legal obligation to support the child? So are they, if they have an order to pay child support, are they actually pay, making these payments? And which I know is very shocking for some people because they would say, well, that's their biological parent. If that person isn't paying consistent child support, why do I have to be on the hook to pay child support? I don't know the answer except to say that... If you meet one the, of these factors, unfortunately... No, and it's the best interest be, of the yeah. child is what I'm thinking, actually. It's the best, the best interest of the child is what... It prevails. Yeah. If, if you're, you know, if, if you're, if you're the more reliable payer, if you provided a certain um, standard of life for the child and you had a close relationship with the child and now there's a biological parent who may or may not pay child support and, and the child has to suffer, then the courts will, will make you step in and pay that child support amount. Now on, on the bright side, if the other um, party is paying child support that could be a factor in whether or not you pay just the guideline amount or if 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 it's an amount that's different from from the guideline amount don't worry it would not be more than the guideline amount it may be less because <laughs> so, i knew when i said different yeah. there it's like it could it could be interpreted any number of ways so um how do you prevent yourself from this obligation there's only one way entering into a marriage contract or a cohabitation agreement so usually when we do those agreements we make it very clear that it doesn't matter what you do for the child it doesn't matter that the fact that the child lived in the home and you provided all of these benefits um, financial benefits for the child none of it is going to put you in the place of a parent and none of that none of your generosity would be construed as you trying to stand in the place of a parent exactly I think that's really the only conceivable way to really prevent um, such a claim. Yeah. Other than the other party agreeing. Yeah, so <laughs> we didn't touch on the issue of retroactive child support, but I think we've loaded you with a lot of information and we'll just leave this by saying that <laughs> we'll do this in another podcast, I think. I think, we should, I think we've loaded you with a lot of information and we should probably have um, another day where we kind of go over what retroactive child support is and things and like enforcement that. Enforcement and how to actually enforce child support. So I think, yeah, that can be a whole um, another podcast. I think, I think. Let's do that next week. Why not? Okay. All right. Enough. So <laughs> until next week, bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening and joining us in the AP Legal Zone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more episodes by searching AP Legal Zone on anywhere you watch podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast today so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about any new episodes. Mm -hmm.